You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Last week we talked about how truth does something. Today I want to talk about what truth is. And I want to talk about what truth is in light of what truth actually is not. It's important to remember something as we go on into this conversation, and that's truth causes us to do things. Truth, what we understand as truth, it, it, it causes us to move in action. It's an inalterable and inescapable reality of truth. And so what is truth? Okay, so, so a biblical understanding of truth is sometimes pulled apart in philosophical and theological attempts to offer some sort of precise definition, which is why I'm not going to attempt to spend all morning talking about what truth is. What I would rather do, actually, is illustrate what truth is not, because in illustrating what truth is not, the Holy Spirit can lead us in light of the words of Jesus, who is the truth. He can lead us into what truth really is. For 50, 60, 70, 80 years, the church has stood up, and preachers and pastors have preached what truth is, and objective truth versus pluralism, and relativism, and subjectivism, and all of these different things, and all of these sort of understandings, and it's kind of and yet we're still here, so I'm not really sure that that's always been the most effective approach that I have taken in the past and what others have taken, so I wanted to offer a different one. But we do have to start somewhere. We do have to start with a basis of what truth is. And we need to remember that for centuries, philosophers and theologians have believed that truth must be more than a replication of just facts. There must be a larger context. There must be a narrative. Say narrative. That truth offers a narrative, a story, a context, that from that context and narrative drips facts. And for Christians, an understanding of truth is, it could, be, could be said that, it, that it's claims that are re, on reality that are consistent with the compassionate purposes of God revealed in Jesus Christ. That truth is this, claims that are faithful to the reality consistent with the compassionate purposes of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. That would be a practical working definition for the Christian. I'm not interested in defining truth for the world um, outside of the Christian circle. I'm only interested in establishing what I believe the scriptures point us to as what is truth for us because if we believe that God really is the eternal one and that God created everything we see and that God put on skin as Jesus Christ and came to rescue humanity, then what God told us has to be truth and it has to be the truth. Therefore, it has to be the truth for everyone, so I'm just going to talk to us, and it has its implications on the rest of the world. At the end of the day, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth. Truth is not just a propositional statement or idea. Truth is a person, and so if you and I have understandings of what truth is or what truth is not, we need to look at Jesus. If my understanding of truth cannot be embodied or found in the life of Jesus Christ, then it probably isn't truth. And that's just a really good rubric. But that takes some work. That assumes then that we're going to spend time learning the life of Jesus. That assumes that we're going to take time knowing the story of God in Jesus Christ. And if we don't know the life of Jesus, then it's going to be hard to know truth because Jesus said, I am the truth. John even said that he's full of grace and truth. Jesus is the truth, therefore it's from there. We have to understand what is true. And here's the issue. Concerns about truth 
are undermined by our contemporary em- emphasis on image, success, self-preservation, American exceptionalism, and personal affirmation. Cynical and dismissive attitudes toward truth are evident when we talk about things like, will it fly? Will what I have to say go over well with the congregation? When we make those statements, we are indicating that we're willing to negotiate truth if it doesn't go over well. See, that's the implication. But we do it. If we were concerned most about truth, we would find a way to say it, hopefully in such a way that doesn't ostracize the hearer, but we would still say it. We wouldn't ask the question, how will this go over? We might ask the question, how can I tell the truth in such a way that it doesn't wound somebody? It might hurt your feelings. It might hurt my feelings, but we'll get over it. Wounding us, however, is an altogether different deal. I think that's wrong. We have to be concerned about truth. And we're functioning in a social environment with a fairly high level of dishonesty and distrust. From the public square of party politics to the private confines of work and home, image, success, self-preservation, American exceptionalism, and personal affirmation have all become so important that everything else is negotiable, including truth. And we saw something different in the Christian movement last week. In Acts chapter 17, verse 5, we saw what happens when truth is embodied by people. When truth gives birth to a community of people who call themselves a community of truth or who call themselves a part of the way, which is what the Christian movement was called at first, was the way. Because that idea of being a followers of the way or being a part of the way, that was a verb. It was an embodiment. And we read this testimony, but the Jews became jealous and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the public assembly. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world, say it with me, upside down, have come here too. Truth has this way of disrupting power and subverting social narratives of truth, false narratives. And he says, They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another what? king. And that is? So see, when you read Luke and when you read Acts, Luke seems very interested in us as readers knowing and remembering that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Because that has to, we have to start somewhere. And that is ultimately truth. And it would be easy to read this and much of Luke's narrative and think that he's setting up Christianity to be against the state, but he's not. Christian mission is narrated by Luke not as a counter-state. It just will counter the state from time to time, as we see here. See, Luke is not trying to help us see that Christianity needs to replace Rome or take back Rome. Like, nowhere in the gospel narrative are the churches considering and worried about taking back Palestine are taking back Asia, are taking back Achaia, are taking back Rome. They're not interested in that embodiment of truth. They're only interested in embodying truth, not enforcing it. And you see this. They're not going up to Caesar, trying to tell Caesar that Jesus is Lord. They already know the truth, and that's this. Jesus is Lord of all and has no need for Caesar's throne over Rome. And that's important. 
If it weren't the case, Jesus' followers would be seeking a violent overthrow of the government. The problem isn't that Jesus is a rival for Caesar's throne. The problem is that Caesar is rivaling Jesus' throne. Not only in a very real socio-political way in this context, but also in the hearts of everyone else. Followers of King Jesus are holding on to the truth that Jesus is Lord of all and Caesar is not. See, the truth Caesar believed was that Rome was the hope of the world. Whereas the truth the church believes is that only Jesus is the hope of the world. See, the truth that Caesar believes was that the Roman Empire was the most exceptional kingdom in the world and that all other people from all other nations to submit to its presence and authority. Whereas the truth the early church believes is that the most exceptional kingdom in the world is a kingdom that's actually not of this world, but that is broken into it called the kingdom of God through King Jesus. And that now they have become what, Paul, what Peter would say, a holy nation, a different kind of nation. One charge to take the truth into the lives of all other people and all other nations. The truth Caesar believed was that Rome was worthy of all allegiance and required that all people, including Christians, to pledge allegiance to the flag of Rome. Whereas the truth the church believes is that the Pledge of Allegiance requires unconditional devotion because they take the words pledge and allegiance seriously. And for them, the only thing to which they could unconditionally offer their devotion to is King Jesus and His kingdom. And this truth created a movement. And this movement is what we read about here. Truth, all truth, or all notions of truth, or all versions of truth creates movements. We established that last week, that truth does something. It's important that we know that. What one believes is true compels them to do something. Truth, whether right or wrong, creates movements. The movements can either be life-giving or death-dealing. But truth creates movements because truth forms a narrative. Say narrative. Here's what I mean. Truth forms a narrative. What I mean by that is truth forms an understanding of how the world works and what kind of life lives up to that. Truth offers an understanding of how the world works and what kind of life is required to live up to that understanding. That's what all truth does. Right, wrong, or indifferent. And I want to illustrate that this morning. I want to answer a couple of questions. I want to answer the question of what happens when a society gets truth wrong. I want to answer the question of what happens when people in power or people with influence offer society an understanding of truth that is actually nothing more than a lie. Truth that isn't truth at all creates a narrative that runs contrary to the narrative of the gospel. And then this truth offers a script. Say script. A script is handed to all the participants and believers in truth that tells us what kind of life works now. The script that false truth offers is a counterscript that runs Contrary to the gospel. We study this script. If it's this truth. And we build our lives upon this script. If it's this truth. But if it's not this truth. 
We still maybe study this, but we live predominantly out of the false narrative of truth. We study the script, and we discover that it inevitably deals out death. Because here's the truth. (laughs) False truth cannot produce life. That's a lie. It's smoke. You see it. You can be engulfed by it, but it goes away. The gospel of God's kingdom where Jesus is Lord offers a counter-narrative with a counter-script. Here's the problem with false truth. The problem with false truth and its script for life is that we most often don't see that it was false until after the fact. What's the phrase? Hindsight is what? It's where that comes from. See, at the time, the false narrative, the narrative of truth that actually is a false narrative of truth, it sounds good and reasonable. It happens for many reasons. Sometimes the so-called truth offers a narrative that speaks to our fears, offering us a perceived way out, our perceived comfort. So here's the truth, here's your fears, here's the truth, here's a way out from your fears. And we don't see until after the fact that that was really a false narrative. Sometimes the so-called truth offers a way forward out of our unhappy well-being, out of our unhappy present situation. And that is why truth matters. But we have to discern what truth is. We need to know the difference between the false narratives and false truth with its false scripts. Our gospel truth, the gospel narrative, and the gospel script. So I need to illustrate this in concrete terms. And now my stomach's getting queasy. What I'm going to show you today will no doubt offend all of us in some way. All of us. This is not my intent. I do not mean to dredge up unhealthy memories of a past gone. I only want to deal honestly with the false narratives of the past. I told you that this would get concrete. And it has to. Because truth is a life of death. Life or death matter. That's not alarmist. That is the truth. And so we must be concrete. Because these false narratives of truth still hold tremendous power in current society. And these false narratives of truth that I'm going to offer us today still inform the scripts by which people build their lives, including Christians. So I'm going to offer you a collection of writings from various people covering a broad spectrum of history. Now, each quote that I offer you is going to illustrate a narrative of truth that dominated society at that time. Or at the very least, carry great influence on portions of that society. And in response to these collections of writings, I'm going to offer words from the Scriptures as a counter-narrative. So stay with me. If you get the feeling to squirm in your chair, squirm, but whatever you do, stay put. Let this end. Let this resolve, but expect the tension. I'm feeling it myself. It made me sick at times typing these things and researching these things. But it was convicting. It made me to repentance. 
And it led me to prayer for you and for me, for our society, for our country, for our world. Now, there's an inherent danger in offering snippets of Scripture. I want to be very clear with that. It's called proof texting. So I'm willing to make all of this part of the manuscript, or any of it really, but this part especially available to anyone with all the footnotes, historical footnotes that I offer, and then the context of the Scriptures that I'm using so that you can look at them in clarity. So, let's begin. We're going to illustrate what truth is not. Say, illustrating what truth is not. We have to practice some active listening here. We're going to start in 1095 AD. Pope Urban II, in his speech at Council of Clermont in 1095 AD, boldly called for the First Crusade in order to fight the Turks from Anatolia as well as reclaim the sacred city of Jerusalem and the Holy Mountain from Holy Land from Muslim rule. This was his speech that began the First Crusade, which we all know gave birth to subsequent crusades where countless Muslims and others were killed. Here's what he said. All who die by the way, whether by land or by sea or in battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God which I am invested. Oh, what a disgrace if such a despised and base race which worships demons should conquer a people which has the faith of omnipotent God and is made glorious with the name of Christ. With what reproaches will the Lord overwhelm us if we do not aid those who with us confess the Christian religion? Let those who have been accustomed unjustly to wage private warfare against the faithful now go against the infidels and end with victory this war which should have been begun long ago. Let those who for a long time have been robbers now become knights. Let those who have been fighting against their brothers and relatives now fight in a proper way against the barbarians. Let those who have been seen serving as missionary, mercenaries for small pay now obtain the eternal reward. Let those who have been wearing themselves out with body and soul now work for a double honor. Behold, on this side will be the sorrowful and poor, on that the rich. On this side the enemies of the Lord, and on that his friends. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. John 18, 36. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your, enemy and hate your, enemy. Hey, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 45. I don't see Jesus saying those things. Jesus is truth, and his word is truth. Now let's move on to American history. On December 3rd of 1833, President Andrew Jackson, a professed Presbyterian Christian, offered his fifth annual message to the Senate and the House of Representatives where he said, My original convictions upon this subject have been confirmed by the course of events for several years. And experience is every day adding to their strength. 
that those tribes, talking about the Native American peoples, cannot exist surrounded by our settlements and in our continual contact with our citizens is certain. They have neither the intelligence, the industry, the moral habits, nor the desire of improvement with which are essential to any favorable change in their condition. Established in the midst of another and a superior race, and without appreciating the causes of their inferiority or seeking to control them, they must necessarily yield to the force of circumstances and ere long disappear. Three years after he signed into law the Indian Removal Act of 1830, he gave this speech, which was five years prior to the Trail of Tears where 4,000 Cherokee Indians died in a forced march. Jesus has to say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 3 through 7. Jesus says this, But I say to you who listen, which obviously is the key here, right? Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you. And from one who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid and fuel full. See, that's the narrative. But the, but the true narrative of truth, Jesus says, is but love your enemies and do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For He is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Jesus is truth and His Word is truth. See, that Andrew Jackson narrative still has sway today, doesn't it? Let's stay in American history, but let's step out beyond our nation's borders to Germany, to Adolf Hitler, who in his speech in Munich on April 12, 1922, said the following, My feelings as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. It points me to the man who once in loneliness, surrounded only by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them and who God's truth was great, not as a sufferer, but as a fighter. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and adders. How terrific was this fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Today, after 2,000 years, with deepest emotion, I recognize more profoundly than ever before in the fact that it was for this that he had to shed his blood upon the cross. As a Christian, 
I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated. But I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. Do you know that? Hey, like sidebar, every faith has their nuts. No, I'm serious. But let us see the planks in our eyes for a moment. Between five and six million Jews died between 1933 and 1944 or five, not to mention the roughly 60 million other men and women and children due to World War II. Jesus has this to say. Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus said, you have said it. Now the reason I wanted to quote that was a little admittedly snarky. Yo, yo Hitler, Jesus was um, um, a Jew. Jesus says, Beloved disciple, the Apostle John had this to say in 1 John 2, 9 and 4.20. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, say this with me, is still in darkness. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, say it with me, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now just sit on that for a minute the Sunday following Charlotte. All of you. All of us. Jesus is truth and his word is truth. So let's step back into American history. Let's go back a few years and then let's work our way to 2016 all in one paragraph. The Ku Klux Klan has a wide-ranging history in Virginia. This is taken directly from their website. The history of the Klan extends from one side of the state to the other. At one time, the Klan had their own radio station in the state. The Washington Post of Monday, August 1st, 1927, stated that the station was WTRC, the 20th District Republicans. The radio station eventually settled in Mount Vernon Hills in 1927. The Klan was large and influential in the 20s, both in the United States and in Virginia. The Klan was spreading the gospel of Christ and the word of who they were and what their mission as a patriotic, fraternal Christian organization was. They had at first protected the white Southerners from abuse and mistreatment from expletive, expletive, and freed expletive after the War of Southern Independence. But later they faded from view and then only started to have any notable visibility after the Klan's second era started in 1915. The Invisible Empire's visibility, as well as their membership numbers, were erratic during the following years. They continued, however, to press forward as only strong Christian white men and women can, regardless of the odds stacked against them by the opposition. Today... Today, the Klan enjoys more power and influence than at almost any other time in history since the 20s because of the hard work and dedication of its membership in the state. We are heavily involved in protecting our children, our rights, our way of life, and defeating politicians who threaten our values. If you're tired of standing on the sidelines and watching your country and its future destroyed before your eyes with no regard for the welfare of your children and their children, please join us with two exclamation marks taken from the United Northern and Southern Knights of the Ku Klux Klan website specifically from the realm of Virginia, September 24th, 2016. 
This is taken from the Ku Klux Klan's website in North Carolina just two days ago. Racial greetings from the loyal white knights of the Ku Klux Klan. To all loyal white knight members in Charlotte, North Carolina area, to all members in the area, you know a lot of whites will be killed. Go down to Charlotte downtown and help whites against expletive, expletive. No robes or uniforms, just street clothes. If it gets nasty, you know what to do. The Apostle Paul says, Colossians 3, verse 5. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there's no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against each other, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, clothe yourselves not with white robes and not with street clothes, but with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom with gratitude in your hearts, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. Jesus is truth and his word is truth. Bert, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to ask you to go all the way to the end to John chapter 3. The gospel offers a counter-narrative. A counter-narrative that this society today needs to hear and needs to, above all things, witness. We do not get to rewrite the script because we didn't establish the narrative. Only the author of the narrative, that is God, can do that. What we need is to be delivered from the pitfalls of these false narratives of truth. We are so formed by the false narratives of truth in our society that our only hope is to somehow be born again. That's our only hope. To be born again into a new narrative of truth. Truth that Jesus and the apostles spoke to that we read as the counter-truth to the false truth we saw. See, a Pharisee named Nicodemus found himself in this same conundrum. As a political and religious leader, he was getting to a point that he was questioning the dominant narrative of truth his society was offering. And when Jesus came on the scene, the script Nicodemus was working from just wasn't making sense in light of now this man who claimed to be the truth. And so late one night, when no one else would know, he goes to see Jesus. 
John 3, verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform signs unless God were with them. And Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, that runs contrary to Nicodemus' understanding of truth. And so he says, how can anyone be born when he is old? It's a logical question. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answers with a counter-narrative to truth, one that he never even knew existed and says, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is everyone born of the spirit. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus. Again, this is running contrary, Jesus, to my narrative of truth. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? (laughs) Jesus replies, I assure you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony, Jesus says. If I have told you about things that happen on earth and you don't believe, denial, denial, sometimes the truth of God's word pushes us to a place of denial because we don't want to face up to what we are feeling is a false narrative of truth. If I have told you about the things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about the things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world that He might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe, listen, is, say it with me, already condemned because they're living in the false narrative of truth. That is a death-dealing narrative and it's a lie. Because He has not believed in the name of the One and the only Son of God who actually is the truth. He is what truth looks like. And if it doesn't look like Jesus, it's not true. And that is as practical to me as the air I breathe. And the only way for it to become as practical to you as the air you breathe is that if you are immersed in the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. A sermon's not going to cut it. So Jesus says in verse 19, This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Their script made sense of their narrative. And so they just stayed with the old script. Because it is easier. It's easier. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. They run from the truth. Fred, it's not that bad anymore. Come on. I mean, I haven't seen it. I don't experience it. Truth according to me, I don't experience it. Surely you read Hitler out of context. Surely he wasn't like really claiming to be a Christian. 
Surely that wasn't what Pope Urban II was doing. Surely the, you read the stuff on the KKK all wrong. Verse 21. Let's read it together. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Okay. See, when a church embodies the narrative of truth that is Jesus, it will surface to the light from the darkness because it is a counter-narrative to society's narrative. It'll look different. In our society, where, and you don't have to buy into racism. I'm not going to sell you on it. In our society, where people of color are pitted against one another, white, black, officers, black, here's what I contend with. In my church family, there are white people. In my church family, there are black people. In my church family, there are police officers. And every one of them are my family. And I'm not going to let my family get divided by a counter-narrative of truth. Because my family is going to come together at this table today. My family needs to learn to listen to my family. My family needs to listen to our black brothers and sisters. And shut our mouths. My family needs to listen to our police brothers and sisters and shut our mouths. Then my family needs to figure out how to come together as a family at this table in submission to the Lord. And then model a different way of being. And tend to our Facebook posts. And tend to our conversations around the water cooler. And tend to our incessant need to explain it away. And justify and validate another person's pain. To take a side that is one of false truth anyway. And stand on the truth that in Christ we are one people. But the beauty of God's grace is that He's given us the reflections of color and cultures and experiences to awaken our minds to what everyone else lives in this world in the hope that maybe we would be people who live a counter-narrative so that we'll show the world something different. We can't do that if we call things like colorblind is of the devil. The notion of colorblind is of the devil because it ignores the beauty of who we are and it ignores the plight from which we live and the counter-narratives of truth that we embrace. But when the people of God live by the truth, all the sin and evil in the world will come to light. And so too will we. And the works that we proclaim will shine like stars in the night. Like a full moon in the pitch black of darkness.
This was the sermon before this week hit. But see, I didn't know that last week when we said that a community of truth embodies truth by self-giving love and reasons through gracious rhetoric and faithful presence and if need be, courageous martyrdom. I didn't realize that we were all going to be given a chance to do that this week. To embody the truth we proclaim through self-giving love and postures of listening and not giving in to the rhetoric. I didn't realize we would have a chance to practice our sermon. Imagine that. We might this week too. Matter of fact, we do every day. Ultimately, church, we can talk about truth all day long and we can stand up here and go to debate to objective truth versus relative truth and subjective truth and all these other platitudes. But here's the deal. We will only know the truth by doing it. Period. We must live like we believe Jesus not just believe in Jesus. And we must believe that we believe, we must live as though we believe that what Jesus says is true. Trust Him. Live into the narrative that He invites us into and live from the script that He gives. And deal honestly, honestly with the false narratives of our society and model for the world and for our society a community of truth. So Jesus said, and this is the last text, John 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Read it with me. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I have made known to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. What fruit are you producing this week on Facebook? Just think about that. What fruit are you producing in your rhetoric? Just think about that. Is it fruit worth eating? Is it fruit that your black brother and sister or your white brother and sister or your police officer brother and sister or your teacher brother and sister or your pastor brother and sister, is it the kind of fruit that they could eat? Is it the kind of fruit that would make them sick? Or is it the kind of fruit that would give them a little life? Verse 17, this is what I command you. Say it with me. Love one another. That's truth. So Jesus prays in John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by, say it, the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so they also may be sanctified by the truth. 